0: Emergency responders in interior Alaska had a busy day along the Tenderfoot Hill in early February, 2023. Shortly after lunchtime, three local fire departments responded to a military fuel tanker that had crossed the center line of the snow-covered Richardson Highway between Delta Junction and Fairbanks and had slid down the hill and off the shoulder and rolled upside down. About 10 minutes after responders arrived on the scene, two more northbound military vehicles met the same fate as they moved down the hill. First, a support vehicle lost control, spun around, and rolled off the opposite side of the road as the overturned tanker. Then, another fuel tanker that had been following the support vehicle also slid off the road, as reported by the Delta Wind newspaper. The fate of the three vehicles that day illustrates the difficulty the military faces in navigating through snow and ice. This challenge is compounded by the fact that heavy-duty tires designed for rugged terrains don't handle as well on cold, slick surfaces. And yet, snow and ice aren't the only challenges facing military vehicles in Arctic environments. In fact, mobility becomes even more difficult during the spring months when frozen ground begins to thaw and the terrain is transformed into a muddy, swampy quagmire. These conditions have hindered numerous expeditions in the far north, including the French invasion of Russia in 1812, The German advance into the Soviet Union during World War II, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2022. Meanwhile, the Arctic, which has long held strategic importance to the United States, is becoming even more critical. In 2021, the Army released a strategy for regaining Arctic dominance, a follow-on to the 2019 update to the Department of Defense Arctic Strategy. Both documents note that the region is an important corridor for defending the U.S. homeland as it serves as a key passageway between North America, Europe, and the Indo-Pacific. They also warned of the potential for instability and competition as melting ice creates new access to Arctic shipping routes and natural resources. As the U.S. strives to maintain order in the region, enhanced Arctic mobility will be a key component. To quote the DoD Arctic strategy, The U.S. Arctic deterrent will require agile, capable, and expeditionary forces with the ability to flexibly project power into and operate within the region.
1: For more than 60 years, ERDC's Cold Regions Research and Engineering Laboratory, or CREL, has led the Army's mission in understanding cold regions and their impact on the military and civil works. This research includes a specialization in vehicle mobility in such complex environments as snow, ice, tundra, and slick muddy fields. Erdic's efforts are enabling better cold weather tires and leading to robust cross-country mobility models that can forecast ice thickness, thaw, and snow depth, and predict which vehicles can perform where in Arctic conditions. These models will not only inform mission and operations planning, but will also guide the future development of better cold-weather vehicles. Erdic is performing real-world testing to solve the unique mobility challenges of icy tundra, deep snow, and muddy spring thaws, and it is providing knowledge that will allow autonomous manned and unmanned systems to navigate in cold regions.
0: I'm Megan Holland Saxton, and with Chris Kiefer, this is the Power of Arctic. Our guests today are Dr. Orion Welling and Mr. Michael Parker, both research mechanical engineers with Arctic's Cold Regions Research and Engineering Laboratory. Orion is chief of Krill's Force Projection and Sustainment Branch, and Mike is the Cold Regions Mobility Lead for Arctic and has been studying vehicle performance in Arctic conditions for more than seventeen years. We will talk with Orion and Mike about how Arctic's cold weather mobility expertise will directly help the U.S. military better protect and defend the Arctic. Orion, Mike, thanks for being with us today.
2: Thank you for having us.
0: Sure. Let's kick it off um, with a question about Arctic mobility. Why does the Army need to study this?
3: Well, you can see there are a lot of examples in recent history or even past history why the mobility in the Arctic is important. There's been a lot of wars that have been fought in the Arctic or in cold climates. And there's been a lot of struggles throughout those wars. The most recent one is the Russian-Ukraine conflict. There's some thawing soils stuff there. Um, there's potentially snow and other other areas of influence into the mobility. So it leads to the fact that, you know, the US military needs to be prepared for anything. We live in an area that has Arctic to our north uh, and we have these thawing soils conditions throughout the U.S. and into Alaska. So we need to be able to move on any of these different soil conditions uh, within, with our entire fleet. Not just you know a particular kind of vehicle, but you be better to understand how our entire fleet can go over these, these various conditions.
1: I guess adding to that too, and, and you kind of referenced it, I mean, it feels like it's a twofold problem, right? Like one is exactly what you said, you've got to be able to be prepared for any kind of condition. And then the other thing is, mobility on the Arctic is so unique compared to other types of terrain. Is that correct?
3: That is correct. There are a lot of unique soil conditions that are in the Arctic and, and some deep snow conditions that are in the Arctic that aren't in other areas. You know, when you think of areas like the tropics, that's a lot of, you know, warmer areas and even the mid latitudes in the United States, you know, a lot of warmer and drier areas. Think of soils like, you know, peat or highly organic soils. These are soils that aren't studied that widely, but they're abundant in the Arctic. So we need to understand, you know, not let alone deal with the snow, but also deal with these these soils that nobody really studies because they don't support roadway construction. They don't support building construction just because of the nature of the soils themselves.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just to add, to that, I would say also in a lot of high north latitudes, there's not that much infrastructure. So if you're trying to move a large fleet of vehicles, you know, you're going to be on potentially dirt roads or go on off-road to get to where you need to go um, yeah. there's like one bridge across the yukon river which is like the whole half northern half of the state then there's a couple roads and that's it so being able to move in any of those situations whether it's any season of the year covering you know ice snow thawing soils it's so dynamic to be ready for that
1: sure mike you've been studying this issue for many years Can you tell us about your background and how you came to be involved in researching Arctic mobility? Sure.
3: So I've been here with Arctic for 17 or 18 years studying mobility. And and like you mentioned, it's changed drastically. Our studies here, as most of the Army labs or most of the uh, Army research, kind of follows what's going on in the world. Think back, you know, the last 30 years where we've been fighting. We had some conflicts over in Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, a lot of desert uh, environments and not only desert environments, but environments that have had different uh, unconventional warfare dealing with IEDs and other things like that. So the vehicles were designed in a very particular way and up armored to deal with that kind of warfare. And then now we're shifting to the Arctic. You know, with the the newest thought process and and influences in the Arctic, we need to think about how these vehicles will be mobile in the Arctic Mm -hmm. and and what do we need to do to these vehicles to make them better. The up-armored nature may not be what we need. Maybe we need something that's lighter and lower ground pressure so we can move across the soils better in these soft soils and soft snow conditions. That's really kind of where I've come from and where we're going to. And not only that, recently in the last three or four years, Army Futures Command has set up the new process for research. And within that, there's next generation ground combat vehicle and also the robotic combat vehicle. All of these things kind of steer where we go and what we're looking at for technology
1: to make the Army be able to fight where it needs to fight. What led you into this field? What kind of led you to study Arctic mobility?
3: I've always been interested in mobility. I have a background in mechanical engineering and just, I like vehicles and around it all my life. So I just, I really, really do enjoy conducting research. I like the seasons. I like the cold climates. I like everything about it. So it was kind of a natural fit for me. The lab that I work at is close by to where I grew up. It has all the, all the benefits of where I grew up. It's studying something that I really like in, in, in areas that are passionate to me. You know, yeah. I like being able to help the military. That's really what we're all here for. And, and in particular, you know, to see an end product go out to the military to help them become uh, more maneuverable in the areas they need to be able to fight in.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's great. Oh, Ryan and Mike is obviously a prime example of this. But can you talk about the team and the amount of expertise Ertic has in studying this issue?
2: Yeah, absolutely. From my perspective, the coolest thing about our team is that we've got both breadth and depth. Like Mike talking about his 17 years of work in mobility and he's also underselling his background in automotive stuff. and He spent years racing and can swap a transmission in 30 minutes or whatever. That's awesome. And knows every piece of the vehicle. It's hard to find that, that level of expertise in a research lab. But then we have the same for the people who are looking at the... Soil mechanics and the snow mechanics. We have people who have just spent their lives, their careers, fascinated by the different components of a soil and how it responds to temperature and moisture and how vegetation changes the mechanical properties, which is really important. You take the vehicle, you put it on soil, you need to know about both to really come up with a full picture. We have folks who are expert in building and maintaining uh, roads made out of snow and runways made out of snow. Folks who, you know, in the autonomy space, which is a really big growth area for us in mobility research, understand how how you take a bunch of sensors and turn the information from those sensors into something that can actually allow a vehicle to navigate. So it's really, I would say, we have kind of a core mobility group here at Krell covers a bunch. It's not just, you know, in one part of the organization, but we probably have 15 to 20 people who are very regularly involved in our mobility research projects and who are writing papers and, and coming from all these different backgrounds. And we'll have somebody with the Soils Expertise partner with Mike to write, a you know, a combined piece. And then we probably have another 20 or 30 people experts in you know, some particular thing like machine learning on like Uh, identifying objects and photos or something like that, that we'll pull in for individual projects based on that need for that expertise. So it's really cool. We've got depth in these experts in very directly in the mobility field, but also through being part of Erdic and the larger Krell, all of the ability to pull in experts in related fields for individual projects and really be able to provide, I think, pretty unparalleled answers to the research questions we have.
0: So this research also benefits from some very specialized, world-class facilities at Krell. Can you tell us more about those?
3: So there's a lot of facilities here uh, at Krell. Two important ones are facilities like the Frost Effects Research Facility and the Cold Climatic Chamber. These are two things that we use for mobility research quite a bit, actually. The Cold Climatic Chamber we just got out of Mobility team just got out of a did a cold start test in there where we tested a particular vehicle down to minus 32 Celsius. So we could see if these vehicles were left out overnight. You know, would the soldier be able to start them or what would they have to do to be able to start them? So there's certain criteria the Army has to, has to be able to pass to be able to field various vehicles. Uh, and this particular vehicle was a unmanned robotic vehicle.
1: Mike, just real quick on that point, just to make sure people grasp what you just said, what the cold chamber allows you to do is, is set the temperature. You leave it at a certain point and and have a vehicle in there, you know, for someone who's never seen this facility. So you can leave it at, you said, minus 32 for several hours, park a vehicle in there and then come back the next morning and test it.
3: That's correct, Chris. The chamber itself is about 10 feet wide and about 20 to 22 or three feet long. So it's a pretty good size chamber and it's probably 10 feet high as well. That's about the size of the vehicle you can fit in there. And in our case, you pull the vehicle in, if you want to do a cold soak, the chamber is already set at temperature and you just let it sit there so that it cold soaks overnight, you can go back and test it the next morning. Yeah, Um, But there's a whole host of other things that you can do inside that chamber. You can do changing temperature conditions. Down the road, we hope to do dynamic weather conditions so we can do like freezing mist. We can do snow conditions in there as well or blowing snow over either vehicles or sensors to test sensor technology. But it's a a very unique capability. I would say probably the only one like it in the United States of that size that can go down that cold.
0: How cold can it get?
3: It can get to minus 65 with a vehicle running inside,
0: and that's Celsius.
3: That's sorry, that's Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. Minus 65 Fahrenheit with a vehicle running inside. Wow. And then on the other side, you have the Firth Frost Effects Research Facility. That's a huge facility. It's probably 250 feet long, and um, it has two lanes that run through it that are about 22 feet wide each. And it's got kind of like aircraft hangar doors on either end, so you can drive completely through the facility and out the other side to make a pass on either one of these lanes. Yeah. We currently are building. Just started um, this week, actually, building a test section in there to study some of these frost susceptible soils where you have you know, the peat or other conditions like a silty sand or a loamy condition that you might find in the Arctic. We can use this facility to control how we freeze or thaw the soils, again, at a controlled rate. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to test these shoulder, they call them shoulder seasons, and they start, you know, in the fall when you freeze up to the wintertime and in the, in the spring when you're thawing out from the wintertime. They're really hard to test those conditions because you wait, you have sensors in place out there to a field test site, and you say, all right, everything's perfect conditions. We organize all of our travel. We get out there at the drop of a hat and you get there and it's all froze up. So now what do you do? You have to test while you're there. So we we test with the conditions that we have. So I guess that just drives the point home that it's extremely difficult to get these conditions. And we have a facility here on our grounds that we can do it all right here. So we decided to build our own test bed And create our own conditions for various soil types so we can study arctic mobility on the soils that we might find out there
2: sure in addition to those bigger pieces of infrastructure that are so unique that we have here at krell we have so many pieces of equipment instrumentation focused on cold that we can also pull in you know we have tools to measure compressive or shear strength of different materials we can look at snow and ice and frozen soils and this is all temperature controlled because people are looking at these materials for other reasons too we can we have a scanning electron microscope that can be kept at cold temperatures to look at the you know different structure of ice crystals so another cool thing like similarly to the breadth of people when we're working on a mobility project if we Identify. Hey, the mobility of this vehicle we're testing in the fur if it's really impacted by the shape of the crystals that are forming in the soil, the shape of the ice crystal. Well, hey, we can go take that and look at it under a microscope. We can take it and measure the mechanical properties. Like again, it just really allows us to look at things from so many different angles because of the at the capabilities we have.
3: Sure. One last thing that we haven't touched on yet is the facilities that I mentioned and that what Orion just mentioned for other pieces of equipment. We also have a whole host of vehicles here. So to be able to study these things, we have to have fully instrumented vehicles and we have several of those here. We have the Polaris side-by-side vehicle, military version of the side-by-side vehicle it's fully instrumented to give us, you know, what the reaction of the vehicle on the ground is. Can we study the forces between the vehicle and the ground so we can study traffic force? We can look at vehicle speed and other vehicle orientations on the vehicle, as well as looking out in front of the vehicle to see what the terrain is that we are about to encounter. And we can put the two of those together, and that leads to our autonomy side of things that we do here. If we can study the vehicle and the terrain in front of the vehicle, then we can better predict how the vehicle moves over the, the ground. And that's just one of many vehicles. We've got several other vehicles here that military is interested in that we conduct a lot of research with on various types of terrain and various Arctic conditions.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about some of your specific projects. Well, I guess we'll start by how are you helping develop better winter tires for military vehicles?
2: This is a project we've been supporting at Corral for a couple of years. And really what we've been doing is taking prototype tires or off-the-shelf tires that are out there, snow tires that we can look at in terms of the application for military vehicles. And we as a team have been going, you know, mounting these tires on vehicles, going out into Alaska, northern Michigan, places with a lot of snow and cold and testing the tractive force, testing the vehicle handling on these different prototypes versus the existing, you know, standard tires for these military vehicles. One of the coolest things I've seen in my I've only been at Krell for a couple of years now. One of the coolest things I've seen in my time here is the spin out from that project of a approved winter tire for the Humvee since our work on that, the Army. Has actually been purchased for all of the Humvees in Alaska earlier this year, and it you know just improved traction on the road. It just keeps people safer, and it's great to feel like the work we do here, you're going to see the impact.
1: Yeah, on the topic of keeping people safer, we talked at the beginning of the show or in the opening narration, kind of about you know some of the training in Alaska. A lot of military vehicles ha- having trouble sometimes on the icy roads, whether it's training or or moving logistics from one facility to another in Alaska. And, and I guess that's kind of, again, where that safety piece is coming in, you know, even in peacetime. On that point, what are the, some of the challenges to creating winter tires for the military as opposed to just general purpose winter tires?
2: I would say there are really two things primarily. One is that they're not the same size tires and the vehicle's weight, you know, you've got an armored vehicle, the footprint of the vehicle might be relatively small compared to the weight of the vehicle. So you got to have something that's specific built for the vehicle. And these aren't out there. So we have to be able to go and show, you know, what can the benefit be? Is it worth spending money? Is the safety improvement going to be enough that it's spending taxpayer money on that? You always have a high burden of proof. We're we're doing this for the country, spending money that people are paying in their taxes. And we want to make sure we're really delivering value. And then the other thing is... You know, it's one thing if you live in Alaska and are commuting to work every day and you just, you're just you just going to get some snow tires because you know you're going to be safer on the road. But the unique requirements of the military, you have to be ready to pivot at any point. And we also have to make sure, while we know that a winter-specific tire is worth putting on vehicles that are mostly going to be in Alaska because of the, you're going to have less accidents even than just in training. But you also... Hey, something might happen in the desert next week, and we have to ship a whole bunch of those vehicles. We have to be ready to move, and they might not be staying in Alaska. Those tires still have to perform at a very high level in a warm climate, in a muddy climate, over stony terrain or over icy terrain. And so we might be trying to push the safety envelope in Alaska or in those cold areas but we have to have, they still have to be generally suitable for any mission that might arise. And finding the right balance of trade-offs there can be challenging. And so that's something that we've spent a lot of our time working on. Yeah. So kind of just to add a little bit
3: to that, just recently, we've been working this, Orion and I, for the last two or three years, and have drafted several good news stories and several bulletins to push forward. And one of these got picked up by high-level army leadership and was just briefed on Friday. So, the Army is taking notice of the research that we do here. In addition to the NSN numbers for these stock tires, uh, winter tires for the Humvee, they're taking notice of the need for the winter tires. So, it's great yeah. to, to get the support from the high level leadership yeah. as well. Yeah.
2: Mike, that was briefed to Congress, right? It was. Yeah. So, I'm partial to seeing the impact on the ground of keeping people safer. But, you know, it also just goes to show like, we're doing important work that yeah. people in our government think is important enough to. Say, hey, Congress, look at the impact we're having, what we're doing here. This work is valuable.
1: Yeah.
0: Autonomy is a hot topic for the military, but I am assuming there are some unique challenges to navigating autonomous vehicles in Arctic environments. Um, How are you working to overcome that?
3: Great question. As you mentioned, there are a lot of unique challenges. And the biggest question we get here um, when we started looking into the autonomy side of things is why is the military looking at it? That's the biggest thing part of the we fight to start this all off. People are saying, you know, Google's looking at it and Tesla's looking at it. And yes, they are. And they're doing a great job at it, but they're looking for on road conditions. And off road conditions are completely different than on road conditions. You don't have the same items to queue in on, like the yellow lines or white lines or curbs, buildings, all that kind of stuff. So that's the biggest difference, especially in the Arctic. You know, you're often operating in conditions where you're in an off road setting and you have no road or you have just a two track gravel road with no buildings around. So now you have to figure out how to get down that road. If you can even see the road, because the, the road may be snow covered. And if the road's snow covered and there are not a lot of trees around, how do you determine where the road is or, or where you can even drive in that matter if you have soft soils underneath the snow? So then you need to be able to figure out, all right, as we're driving along, you know, what kind of snow conditions am I driving on? There's a lot of what they consider flat light conditions where you can't see the undulations in the terrain. So you have to be able to figure out other ways besides visible cameras to figure out, you know, how to look at the snow to pick out those obstacles or to pick out the different types of snow that you're driving on. Because it makes a big difference if the snow is deep, if it's packed snow, if it's fresh snow, if it's something where you have it's really wet and slippery. So there's a lot of different types of snow out there. So we, we just employ a variety of sensing technologies to allow us to pick out those different types. And that, along with the way the vehicle is behaving, it allows us to start to navigate or create control algorithms for navigation in the Arctic. In addition to like looking at the different types of snow in in the Arctic, you have to also understand what kind of vehicle you are you driving around? Is it it a a light robotic um, wheeled vehicle? Is it a light robotic tracked vehicle? Each one of those vehicles behaves differently in the snow and your algorithms have to change accordingly. Additional things that you may use for autonomy are things like unmanned aerial systems. So you put sensors on these unmanned aerial systems and you collect the sensor feed out in front of the vehicle and report that back to your vehicle. So you can say, all right, here's what the conditions are out in front of the vehicle, even further ahead than what the vehicle can see. And then you can use that information along with what I just mentioned on terrain sensing by the vehicle and terrain sensing in front of the vehicle itself with sensors on the vehicle and and create these algorithms that allow the vehicle to perform optimally in these cold regions. And again, this is not just snow and ice, but anything from, you know, these super highly organic soils that pose a challenge to vehicles in the Arctic into the snow and ice regime. But this is an area that that's pretty new to the army. You know, it was kind of came with the Army Futures Command in the last couple of years. Krell's departure into this lane has is, is really been only in the last few years. And as such, we've recruited very highly technical individuals or specialized individuals to help us in these areas for machine learning, neural networks, and to be able to handle all this data that's coming in and to be able to process it in a way that's meaningful to the soldiers, kind of in a pseudo real time. So we can, don't have to process it on the back end, but we can process it as we're moving forward.
1: Yeah. And in terms of this cold weather autonomous research, Is this one of the most difficult environments to make autonomy work? I've heard it said, and you talked in the beginning about off-road presents specific challenges to the military because you don't have, you know, the lines of roads to follow. And I mean, you kind of talked about that that just when you add in the challenge of snow obstructing visibility, and, and like you said, to a sensor, everything looks white. I mean, is this one of the most challenging environments for autonomy?
3: Yeah, Chris, it really is. If you think about it, we have a snow covered field out there and, and you don't have a lot of bushes because the snow's over the top of the bushes. That's really kind of the worst scenario you can possibly put yourself in. You can't see the road. You can't see any delineations on the side of the road, whether it's from vegetation, grass, stuff like that. If you're lucky enough, you may have a tree wall on the side of the road that can help you stay on the road. But other than that, you know, everything's kind of blanketed by an area of snow. And, and, and then, oh, by the way, it changes every day. You know, if it snows or freezing rain overnight or whatever, your surface is continually changing and it affects the way the, mobi- the vehicle moves through that type of environment. So, yeah, it, it's an extremely challenging and I would even say, you know, one of the most important and, and most difficult areas to tackle autonomy in.
1: Yeah. Another major effort you guys are doing is trying to improve mobility models for cold regions. Can you tell us more about that and why those models are important?
3: We do a lot of research, winter tires included, to understand where vehicles can or can't move uh, maneuver through these environments. And with that research, you know, a lot of experimentation, field work, going out into these cold areas and collecting mobility characteristics of these vehicles, along with what Orion mentioned earlier, the soils or terrain characteristics to go along with it. Both are equally important. You have to be able to understand what you're driving on and what the vehicle is that you're driving on it before you can fully understand the peak track performance of the vehicle. And then once you have all that, what do you do with it? How does the military best use that information? And one of those ways is to build a model or a set of equations that you can put into a model that can then predict cross country mobility for these vehicles. So you can then say, all right, this vehicle on these different terrain types, this is where you will or won't be able to go uh, with a certain level of confidence. And you you can give speed predictions uh, over those terrains. And that's a lot of times what the military is looking for. Like, all right, you know, we get requests from the military directly saying, we've got this uh, mission that we've got to do, you know, tell us how our vehicles are going to perform on it. Mm -hmm. So they, they reach back to us and we do an analysis and we send it forward to them and it gives them the piece of information that they can't compute in the field that is critical to their success. That's just one example of how we put these things into models.
1: And I was getting, so my question was gonna be why those models matter. And I guess why they matter is exactly what you said for just for planning operations and whatnot.
3: That's one of them. You know, one of the reasons is for planning and operations that that same modeling technique is used for vehicle acquisition. Now we don't do a lot of acquisition here, but the same equations and stuff that we put into this modeling code is used for vehicle acquisition. Not only the planning purposes, but the acquisition side. And also models are also used to create these algorithms, to make these algorithms better. Because as you know, you can only test so many different conditions in the field. So you have to create models to be able to fill in the holes of areas that you can't study when you're out there in the field so that you can make the best possible predictive model so that you don't encounter a scenario where you haven't studied it. And then the soldiers are like, well, so what do we do in this case? So that's where you, you build the model to fill in the holes. And then you can create the equations from that to put into your cross-country mobility model, You know, the larger you know, operational model.
1: When you mention for acquisitions, just for people who aren't as familiar with that subject, I guess what you're basically saying is when they're looking to buy vehicles for the military, they can use these models models to test their specifications and test whether they'll work in various conditions and whatnot.
3: That is correct, Chris. They can use these things to, to assess a vehicle's performance prior to buying um, the vehicle or as, as a step in the, the purchasing process.
1: Talk about the field testing you guys do and, and how that informs this work. We're in the field every winter.
3: For several months, probably from December through almost March, collecting field data, not only on the vehicles themselves, but like sensor performance. How do different sensors perform? Capturing snowfall, capturing obscurance from snowfall. So we study the environment's effect on the sensor as well as the vehicle's ability to perform in these environments. So we study all aspects of these winter environments because they're all important. So collecting all this information allows us to build virtual models where you can create these almost like a gaming engine, Unreal Engine 4 style models where you can develop realistic feedback. And you wanna make sure that what you feed into that is is an accurate representation of what you're seeing in the field. So we study these sensor performances and then we build models around those to make sure they behave properly. And then we can put them into virtual models that the soldiers can then drive to get acquainted with vehicles, to see how autonomy is gonna work, to better predict, you know, autonomous navigation in these environments. Again, one of these scenarios where you can't predict everything. So creating a realistic environment where the soldiers can drive around or where the sensors are deployed and, and can sense out in front of the vehicle are, are critical to the development of these Cold Regions autonomous navigation algorithms and to the actual, you know, planning purposes for the military.
0: Oh, Ryan, we talked with Mike about his background at the top of the episode. Can you tell us about your background and how you came to be involved with this research?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I've been interested in mobility since I was a kid, riding my bike to my friend's house, just like how you get different places in the world. And I did my undergrad at MIT, and I uh, spent a lot of time there working in the Sloan Automotive Lab, looking at uh, different engine and fueling technologies. My PhD from, I was at University of Cambridge over in England, really looking at engine performance or passenger vehicles. So that was like my kind of tech side introduction to this. But then I went on from that to I worked in Congress for a while as a research fellow looking at like mobility policy. I then went on to consulting roles, looking at working with automotive companies, figuring out kind of their manufacturing strategies and sales strategies, and then in consulting, also working with cities state governments, um, you know, how to do road planning and how cars get from one place to another place and how you plan for that in a local, in your budgeting and construction plans. So kind of, I've just been fascinated by it from kind of every different direction. It's actually one of my favorite things about this, this role I have here at Krell, which is, you know, that geeky engineer side of me, I, I get to use that and go down in the lab and work on vehicle sensors and go to the field and look at winter tire performance and actually take some hard measurements but then there's you know a lot of what we do here too is make sure that what we're working on is aligned with the army's needs and is really delivering value to the soldiers and i get to be involved in all of that too and, and thinking at that kind of strategic level That's what really brought me here, all those different uh, kind of a lifelong interest in how you get from A to B and all the different things that go into that. And I get to work on all of it here, which is great.
0: And is CREL an organization that you already knew about based on your long time work in the field? Or how did you learn about CREL?
2: I knew about the Corps of Engineers and uh, some of the work in uh, mobility and particularly infrastructure. But no, I would say I got lucky in that respect. I moved to New Hampshire for my wife's job, actually. She's a professor here at Dartmouth College. And at that time I was working as a consultant, working with auto companies and state and local governments. And I kept on doing that while after we moved for a little while. And then uh, it was actually Mike here on the line and another colleague of ours, Sally Shoup, who uh, approached me and said, hey, what are you doing down the street uh, with this background and interest in?" mobility. Why aren't you working for Krell? And they told me what the place was and walked me around and showed me what I could be working on. And I haven't looked back. It's been a, a great choice for me to come here. And I feel really lucky to have just kind of stumbled into that without knowing about it up front.
1: Wow.
3: That's, that's cool. Orion's being kind of modest in some of his areas of expertise. And one of them is his ability to adapt on the fly. He's had some very unique life experiences um, related to mobility and cycling you know, across the globe and having to adapt on the fly for not only being able to fix things on his bike, but being able to adapt to various cultures as he's going through these different areas that becomes a huge asset to the team. You know, to have all that, that knowledge and adaptability and cultural diversity is just
1: fantastic. Y'all both bring so much credentials to this.
0: Yeah, I also, Orion, I'm having to stop myself from going down a rabbit hole right now about cycling around the globe. That sounds really cool. Well,
2: I'll give you the 30-second version so that we can keep moving forward. But uh, in undergrad, I took a year off and bicycled from uh, the Arctic Ocean down to southern Argentina. And then subsequently did a cycle trip from Cape Town to Cairo in Africa and then my wife and I cycled across China just before moving here to New Hampshire. And now I have a five-year-old and it's harder to do those things. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But again, that comes from my interest in just like, how do you get from A to B and what's there? and
1: That's great. And the backgrounds that, that both of you guys bring to this makes us an interesting discussion, but it, more importantly, I think, is what makes the work you guys do so valuable. Talk about, you know, when people think about Arctic mobility, the first thing they probably think about is snow and ice. Um, But y'all have mentioned before, maybe the greatest challenge comes during the spring when the ground is thawing. Why is that so challenging and how are you working to solve it? Yeah, I mean, mobility in
3: the Arctic, the first thing people do think of are are snow and ice. But as I mentioned earlier, look at the most recent conflict between Russia and Ukraine. This is a, a very forefront issue that the world is dealing with. There's been a lot of information out there showing vehicles immobilized in thawing soils um the same thing happens not quite as bad but in the fall when things are freezing up through some freeze thaw cycles there but the reason why it's so challenging is because you never know when it's going to happen mm-hmm. you can predict these things you know to some level of degree but as i mentioned earlier you know one morning it could be all completely froze up you're like oh great our models or intel says it's it's frozen up you get out there you know and it, it may have been frozen in the morning And then as you approach the afternoon, everything thaws out. And now what was frozen in the morning, just hard enough for you to move across is a quagmire and you can't get anything through it. You need to understand both aspects of it, you know, to be able to better predict how long you can move on it, as well as what happens when it becomes thawed out and you can't move. Do you go around it? Do you specialize your vehicle fleet so that you can drive through it still? There's a lot of questions there that a lot of different organizations are asking themselves, you know, not just the United States military. I'm sure there's other militaries out there that are interested in the same thing. I'm sure several NATO countries are are interested in this because a lot of the NATO countries in you know, the European area have some sort of Arctic capability or some sort of Arctic area that, that you know, is within their their area of defense. So they need to understand how their vehicles will move through it. So the U.S. as a NATO country needs to understand it, but also needs to help others understand how we can move through this, become you know one force if needed.
1: One of the, I guess, background information you sent me for this, talking about that condition, used the word, and I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it right, Rasputista. But what I really liked was the one of the translations I saw for it talked about a sea of mud. I mean, I felt like that kind of capture was just how difficult that can be to get across
3: that's really what it is. You know, it's, it's just kind of a sea of mud that kind of swallows up vehicles. Depending on what it is, you know, it could be a free stock condition on a otherwise competent roadbed structure that you would think you'd be able to drive down, or it could be something where the top surface of an organic uh, area has thawed out and is equally as slimy and slippery to get through. So yeah, it's extremely challenging and it's extremely difficult to study, as I mentioned before, because the conditions are so dynamic Unless you have a facility that you can test in to to better understand those conditions, you know, all times of the year, you know, you're you're limited if you don't have that to just testing, you know, a couple of times throughout the spring to get the information that you need.
1: And you guys, we talked about the facilities at the top of the show. I'm guessing that that's another thing that y'all are able to test for, using some of those facilities? Absolutely. And we're, we're currently working on a project to study that
3: probably for some time in the future. You can see this, the current one, uh, test bed that we're putting in being a five to 10 year study effort to be able to study various soils conditions in the whole, the whole suite of how, how we move across those.
0: How much does this research benefit from Arctic's interdisciplinary expertise?
2: Oh, I think it is huge. I talked about the breadth we have here at Krell, but um, the breadth across ERDC, I mean, it, just to be able to pick up the phone and talk to an expert in so many different things uh, to help us solve these problems. And we, you know, across ERDC, of course we work with a lot of outside organizations too, and with the Army and Marines and so on, but we work really closely with a lot of other labs uh, at ERDC. Uh, so we are very tied in with the mobility group at GSL and with the robotics group at Searle um, and we work with folks at GRL on on mapping in some of our projects and just to be able to again like pick up the phone and talk to somebody who's looked at some technical challenge that's related to something that's coming to us and even if they don't have a background in the how do you deal with this at minus 40 degrees it's still they can help us get up to speed quickly. They can help bring people on our projects and or just get advice. And yeah, it's huge. I, I can't imagine being able to do half of what we do without being able to also lean on, on all of Erdic and make it happen.
3: So erdic has got seven different labs out there. And each one of those labs kind of specializes in a different area of expertise, anywhere from geospatial to construction to mobility coastal hydraulics, information technology. So there's a lot of very broad topics, but when, you come down, when it comes down to Arctic mobility, we still use a lot of those topics within the Arctic mobility. So it's critical that, you know, that we have all these different capabilities and we can reach out to our, to our colleagues in these different labs to say, hey, how did you deal with sensors on your autonomous vehicle? And how did you link all those in? You know, what was the backbone that you used to tie all your sensors together? We can pull that information from those guys. You know, how do you deal with geospatial information and looking at imagery or whatever in, in different areas? We can pull from different lab in that area. So we don't need to be experts in everything, but we can pull from the experts pretty quickly what we need for information so that we can we can apply it to the Arctic. You know, that's what makes Arctic a very good research organization is that it's got so many different experts in so many different areas and it's different climate conditions. So it's a hugely valuable asset.
1: You mentioned outside organizations too. Who are some of your partners? And related to that, are you working with other nations as well? So yeah, uh, we've got a lot of partners out there. Uh, and we do work with other
3: nations. We work with NATO countries to study vehicle mobility, uh, several of them over there in Europe. And we also we have several partners here within the United States, folks like the National Science Foundation or NSF. A lot of the different uh, groups within DASA, Deputy Assistant to the Secretary of the Army. Um, there's a lot of different groups there that we interact with obviously directly from afc information funnels down through the urdic and we get funded that way to look at a, a lot of different military issues as well as the other services the marines the air force the coast guard we have projects for all of those or with all of those urdic and CRL in particular is a heavily reimbursable organization so we rely on the researchers going out there and writing proposals and bringing in the funding for their research so that could bring them anywhere a unique Example that just happened this year related to the snow and ice is one of our researchers here was reached out to by the U.S. one of the U.S. luge teams to study ice friction between their luge and, and the ice surface itself. Not only do we study vehicle mobility in the traditional context, but we study it you know, in areas like runners on a sled or friction between a composite sheet in the snow where we have to drag fuel from McMurdo Station up the South Pole. So we study mobility in Arctic and Antarctic in a variety of different ways so that the army can fulfill its mission entirely, not just in the the military construct, but also on the civilian side, you know, NSF fuel to South Pole Station, the US luge team, all those kinds of things as well. So there's a lot of different things that we do here at Crow.
2: I'll add to that too, this is another, like our ability to engage these international partners, you know, and other industry and service branches, So much of that comes from being part of URDIC and kind of what this organization gives us in terms of access. Just for example, something that I've been working on a lot recently, the director of our lab here at Krell, Dr. Corvo, is the U.S. Army's lead on a seven-nation international research program, international cooperative engagement program for polar research, ice paper basically we have agreements in place already and a memorandum of understanding to be able to share information with these countries and vehicles to put together joint funded research and um, kind of that upfront buy and we have that resource you know i can walk down the hall and talk to our director and say hey you know i heard about this thing that's going on in finland Um, i'd really like to get involved and i think Krell would have a good role in it and he can say great I can reach out to my counterpart through this ice paper program in Finland and we have the agreements all in place and let's just do it. And again, so like the infrastructure of URDIC, having the engagement of all of those different pathways makes our ability to have impact all the greater.
1: Fantastic. Thank you guys. This is Really enjoyed this discussion on, uh, you know, it's really clear, both the passion that you each have for this topic and the credentials you all bring in the background, but but also the impact that this work is having, you know, why it matters and the difference that you're making through your research. So thanks for the work you do, and thanks for taking time to stop and join us and talk about it.
2: Thank you. That was Thank you fantastic.
1: You. Thank you very much for this. As the Army's 2021 Arctic Strategy notes, the Arctic is simultaneously an area of competition a line of attack and conflict, a vital area holding many of our nation's natural resources, and a platform for global power projection. That same strategy also cites the need to improve mobility in an Arctic environment. Arctic research is playing a critical role in these efforts.
0: The Power of Arctic podcast is a production of the US Army Engineer Research and Development Center. Follow Arctic on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest information. You can listen to the Power of Arctic podcast and all major podcast players. Visit powerofarticpodcast.org for more resources. You can also contact us at powerofarticpodcast at usace.army.mil. That's all for today. We'll see you next time.